Welcome to MS Masters. Multiple sclerosis can be challenging to diagnose and treat. The good news is there are more options than ever for your patients with MS. The challenge is an overflowing cornucopia of information that can be difficult to digest. MS Masters helps you stay on top of it all with expert presentations on key topics within MS. In this episode, Dr. Anthony Feinstein, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto and Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Ontario, Canada, speaks about cognitive dysfunction in multiple sclerosis. Dr. Feinstein is also the author of the recently released book, Mind, Mood and Memory, The Neurobehavioral Consequences of Multiple Sclerosis, published by and available from the Johns Hopkins University Press. Cognitive dysfunction in people with multiple sclerosis. My name is Anthony Feinstein. I'm a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. I run a neuropsychiatry clinic devoted to people with multiple sclerosis. And I also have a research team that focuses on the neurobehavioral aspects of MS. The aims for my talk are as follows. To appreciate the prevalence and range of cognitive difficulties experienced by people with MS to understand the real-world implications of cognitive dysfunction, to know how to assess cognition in people with MS, and lastly, to appreciate treatment options available for cognitive dysfunction. So the first point is this, cognitive difficulties are common in people with MS. So when you look at individuals with clinically isolated syndromes, in other words, the precursor to MS in many cases, we can see that approximately one in three individuals will have cognitive difficulties. When you look at relapsing remitting MS, the prevalence rate is around 44%, and it jumps appreciably when you get into the progressive forms of the disease. With secondary progressive MS, as high as almost 80%, and with primary progressive, even higher. Taken overall, so MS collectively, the prevalence rate of cognitive difficulties is around 46% cognitive difficulties increase as the disease progresses. Majority of people will not have impairment around 74%, have about 8% of mild impairment, 18% already, even at disease onset, with moderate impairment, which is defined as um, failure on at least five um, subtests sub of a cognitive battery. Five years on into the disease, we see that 33% of individuals now have mild impairment. Uh, the rate of moderate impairment remains fairly stable at about 16%. And then 10 years into the disease, we can see that the majority of people with MS now have cognitive impairment, which can range from mild to moderate, depending on the number of cognitive tests that they failed. So a progressive cognitive decline as the disease progresses. What kind of deficits do we see in people with MS? Well, the quintessential cognitive problem is one of delayed processing speed. Information processing speed slows down. But memory difficulties are also very common, as you can see. You can see that visual memory difficulties are more frequent than verbal memory problems, but certainly there's a lot of verbal memory deficits, both immediate and delayed uh, abnormalities in people with MS. You can also see that executive functioning is impaired. At the bottom, you see concept formation, which refers to executive functioning and uh, visual perceptual abnormalities are present as well. But the important point to remember is that 
delayed processing speed is probably the cardinal cognitive difficulty that we confront in people with MS. These cognitive problems can have real world consequences. Individuals who have impairment um, have difficulty with their activities of daily living, such very basic activities of bathing and looking after their personal hygiene, shelving, unshelving food, opening containers, using utensils, operating appliances, even making a bed can be complicated in an individual who's got marked cognitive impairment. So, you know, the ecological validity of uh, this is very significant. People with MS who have cognitive problems struggle in the real world. We can also see how cognitive difficulties can impede a person's ability to stay on top of their disease-modifying medication. So one of the commonest reasons for individuals not using a disease-modifying drug or forgetting to use a disease-modifying drug is because of their cognitive impairment. They simply forget to, to give themselves the injection or to take their pill. There are other reasons, of course, why people don't take their medication. They may be fatigued, they may be despondent, and so they're depressed and they lack the motivation to do it, etc. But the biggest factor over here is that they forget to give themselves the medication. So how can we assess cognitive difficulties? Well, there is a self-report screening questionnaire. So should you not have access to neuropsychology, this can be used. There's a scale for a person with MS to use and also a scale for an informant. Then we have brief screening batteries. The one that's now used probably most frequently is the brief international cognitive assessment in MS, the BICAMS. There's also consensus guidelines for more detailed testing. So a group of neuropsychologists got together and they came up with a battery called the MACFIMS, the Minimal Assessment of Cognitive Function in MS. And this is a comprehensive battery looking at verbal and visual memory, processing speed, visual spatial abilities, and executive functioning. It takes about 90 minutes in a healthy person and longer in a person with multiple sclerosis. The brief international cognitive assessment in MS, on the other hand, takes about 10 minutes. So it's very rapid. And it consists of a test of processing speed and a test of verbal and visual memory. People often ask, what about the mini mental state examination and the Montreal cognitive assessment? And the bottom line is that these are not particularly helpful in people with MS. They lack sensitivity, simply because these tests, I think, do not have an index of processing speed. So we try not to use those. Rather, we use these validated cognitive batteries, uh, which we know are very sensitive in teasing out deficits in people with MS. So as I said, the brief international cognitive assessment in MS is now widely used. It's been translated and validated into multiple languages. It takes about 10 minutes to complete. And the tests that make up this brief battery are the California verbal learning test, gives you a test of obviously verbal memory, the brief visual memory test, and then the simple digit modalities test, the SDMT, which has emerged as a particularly sensitive test in teasing out cognitive problems in people with MS. And what the SDMT does, it's a test of processing speed largely. And now we have the detailed battery that I spoke about, the MACFIMS, and you can see it's more comprehensive looking at processing speed and working memory. Once again, it has the SDMT. There's another test there, the PASTAT, the PASTE Auditory Serial Edition task. You've got your test of memory, the California Verbal Learning Test, the Pre-Visual Memory Test, which you're familiar with now because they're part of the BICAMS. There's a test of executive functioning and visual perception and language attention and executive function is captured by the controlled oral word association test. I've already spoken about the weaknesses of the mini mental state examination in the MOCA. 
we tend not to use these because they lack sensitivity. So let me speak a bit more about the simple digit modalities test. So this has emerged as the sentinel test for cognitive problems in people with multiple sclerosis. Um, this is part of a consensus uh, paper put out by Ralph Benedict and colleagues in which they advocate for cognitive testing in people with MS. And they make the point that if you only have to use one cognitive test, choose the SDMT. So if you're in a busy neurological practice, and you want a cognitive assessment on your patients, but you don't have access to a neuropsychologist, for example, the SDMT is a very useful test that you can bring into your practice. Um, the individual is given a piece of paper. At the top, you can see numbers from one to nine, and then nine different symbols. This is the code. Underneath, you have the symbols in a different order. And then the, the person doing the test has 90 seconds to match these symbols with the numbers according to the code above. That's all it is. So it's not a complex test for patients to complete. Patients don't mind this test as they do some of the more difficult cognitive tests like the PACEP, for example. So the simple digit modality test is something that people are comfortable doing. It takes 90 seconds, it's very brief, and it gives you a lot of very useful information in terms of information processing speed. One of the um, topics that my lab has focused on over the last few years is to try and bring cognitive testing into a real world situation. I mean, what typically happens is that when an individual has neuropsychological testing, they sit in an office, we put a sign up outside that says, quiet, please, testing in progress. And we create this ideal environment of silence. But this of course is not the real world. We live in a world that's full of distractions, noise, people moving around, multiple things going on. And this is a world of course that people with MS have to interact with. So we undertook the study in which we looked at 100 people with multiple sclerosis, 100 healthy controls. We developed a computerized version of the simple digital modalities test. And we had two versions, one with and one without distractors. We also gave all participants a minimal assessment of cognitive function and Macrum's battery that I've explained to you. And we had a look at pre-morbid intelligence in all our participants. The numbers above, numbers one to nine, nine different shapes. And below that, you've got nine shapes, the same nine shapes in a different order, and a buzzer sounds, and the individual has to match each one of these shapes over here with the number according to the code, eight times. For the distractor version of this test, we embedded sounds, a car horn or a telephone ringing. So there we are, you hear the sounds, and cause the sounds at the same volume and for the same duration. So we were able to standardize the distractions. And so we gave the test to people with and without distractors. And this is what the results showed. Essentially what the distractors showed was that we could tease out more cognitive problems in people with, with MS. In other words, by bringing in the distractors, we were able to elicit more cognitive difficulties. Now this is also true for healthy people. So when we bring the distractors into our life, we too, can struggle with that. But people with MS struggle disproportionately. And we were able to show that certain individuals who tested within the normal range on the traditional SDMT were now cognitively impaired when we brought in the distractors. And so we have a good example over there of how people with MS struggle in a real world situation and they have to deal with a fast paced world that's swirling around them where there's noise and distraction that can unmask some of their cognitive difficulties. 
I'm not going to speak at length about depression in people with MS, but just to make the point that it's very common, that about 50% of people with multiple sclerosis will develop a major depression over the course of their lifetime. And when we look at depression and cognition in people with MS, what we see is that depression makes it even more difficult for people to function cognitively, plus depression magnifies the role played by distractors. So should you have a person with multiple sclerosis who also have to, has depression, there's good data to show that these individuals will struggle even more in managing distractions in terms of their real world functioning. We don't see this so much with anxiety, but we certainly see it with depression. So there's almost this additive effect of depression and distractions further impeding a person's cognitive abilities. And we know this has implications in terms of their functioning in the real world. I mean, it affects people's ability at work and at home. We don't live in a world that's free of distraction. And if you're depressed, it becomes much harder to manage your cognition in this context. And this is a nice reference. It's a lovely book by Stefan van der Stiegel, How Attention Works, Finding Your Way in a World Full of Distraction, just to make the point that even without multiple sclerosis, we can struggle with distractions. But when you have a brain disease like MS, where you've got cerebral compromise, distraction makes things so much worse. So what about brain imaging and cognitive difficulties? We know that MRI is very sensitive in showing us what the MS brain looks like in terms of plaques and atrophy. We also have um, different bra uh, brain imaging techniques can, that can look at normal appearing brain tissue, normal appearing white matter and gray matter. I'm talking about diffusion tensor imaging and magnetization transfer imaging. But when you look at this full array of MRI scanning techniques and variables, cerebral atrophy has emerged as the most robust predictor of cognitive difficulties. And in particular, thalamic atrophy is a robust marker of cognitive problems. And the thalami sit on either side of the third ventricle. And in fact, the third ventricle width can be a surrogate marker for atrophy. So, you know, neuroradiologists will not routinely comment on the thalamus in a traditional MRI, but you can ask them to comment on the width of the third ventricle, because if that's atrophied, if the third ventricle is enlarged, it becomes a surrogate marker for what's going on with the thalamus. And that can give you a clue as to potential cognitive difficulties in people with multiple sclerosis. And so the correlations between thalamic atrophy and an array of cognitive indices is actually quite robust. The third ventricle starts widening as you move from relapsing remitting disease to a more progressive form of disease, secondary progressive disease, every so enlarges and why does it enlarge? Because either side of this ventricle, we have the thalamus and the thalamus is atrophying and it's shrinking. And we now know that this can be a very robust marker of cognitive difficulties in people with multiple sclerosis. And so even if your colleagues in neuroradiology do not comment on the thalamus, they typically don't do in a standard MRI, they can tell you what the third ventricle looks like. And if it's the impression that this is atrophied or it's widened, then you, know, you should be uh, suspicious for cognitive difficulties in your patients with multiple sclerosis. So how can we treat cognitive dysfunction? Well, the bottom line is that medications are not particularly helpful. This is the meta-analysis of um, various uh, medications such as denepazole, which is you know, the treatment for Alzheimer's disease, um, ginkgo biloba, memantine, ribostigmine, et cetera. 
And you know, the, these, the, these medications have been tried in relapsing, remitting, primary progressive and secondary progressive MS, and the data are certainly not particularly rewarding. We know that these medications are not helpful. What is more relevant now is this emerging literature relating to cognitive rehabilitation. And there are specific computerized programs that can be very helpful in providing cognitive rehabilitation. We know, and these are uh, studies that await uh, replication, but we know that cognitive rehabilitation can help memory. It can help processing speed. That um, you can give it in a group setting, which is particularly useful. So if you have a number of individuals whose cognitive deficits are similar, you can provide cognitive rehab to them collectively. You do not have to give it individually. There's data to show that this can be effective as well. There's an app that can be uh, helpful in terms of cognitive rehab. And so there are a number of ways that we can now administer cognitive rehabilitation. The important point behind cognitive rehabilitation is that you're looking for cognitive improvement. This is not the same as cognitive compensatory strategies in which we help your patients work around their cognitive difficulties. The focus of cognitive rehab is either to slow the cognitive decline or ideally to bring about some cognitive improvement. And the preliminary data now show that this is potentially possible. What's really interesting is that individual labs are now starting to bring in adjunctive therapies as well. For example, cognitive rehabilitation plus another intervention such as exercise that can be very helpful potentially in, um, in, uh, in lessening the cognitive burden for people with multiple sclerosis. So in summary, this is what I've conveyed in my talk today. That cognitive dysfunction is common in people with multiple sclerosis, that the deficits are predominantly those of processing speed and memory, that people with multiple sclerosis who have cognitive difficulties will show very real-world negative consequences in terms of their activities of daily living. Distractors in the real world can bring out or expose more cognitive problems in people with multiple sclerosis. And because we live in a world full of distraction, this is absolutely relevant for the lives of people with multiple sclerosis. There is now a firm conviction on the part of neuropsychologists and behavioral neurologists that every person with multiple sclerosis should have cognitive testing. You should establish a cognitive baseline in your patients. Then even if there are no immediate concerns about cognitive problems, establishing a baseline is important so that you can gauge change over time. If in your practice you lack neuropsychological resources, you can still administer the simple digit modality test. This is brief. It takes about 90 seconds to administer. Patients like it, it's sensitive, and you can use periodic SDMTs to monitor cognitive change over time. So you can repeat these every year. You can use serial versions of the test to minimize practice effects, but it's a very useful way of monitoring cognition in a busy clinical practice. When you look at brain MRI, we know that there are now some robust um, MRI correlates of cognitive difficulty. In particular, deep gray matter um, uh, provides a robust association with cognitive problems. There's also diffuse white matter atrophy. Atrophy in general is a sensitive uh, marker of cognitive difficulties. And one structure in particular, the thalamus, is known to be pivotal in terms of a person's ability to manage cognitively. Remember that third ventricle width can be a surrogate for 
thalamic atrophy, and the neuroradiologist that you work with can comment on that in a standard MRI scan. In terms of treatment, we know that cognitive rehabilitation can improve cognition. There's emerging literature that perhaps some disease-modifying treatments might be able to do the same. There's an emerging body of work to show that synergistic treatments can be very important, such as cognitive rehabilitation plus a disease-modifying treatment, or cognitive rehabilitation and aerobic exercise, for example. And there are a number of research groups that are looking at this now. But there's a big remaining unanswered question that hangs over this literature. If indeed we can bring about some cognitive improvement in people with multiple sclerosis, does this translate into real-world benefits for our patients? And to date, we don't have a clear answer to that. There's some clues that this might be the case. For example, if you use serial simple digit modality tests, pre and post cognitive rehabilitation, there's evidence to suggest that a four point change on the SDMT is indicative of some real world benefit as well. So should be able to bring about a four point improvement on the SDMT, this may translate into some real world benefits for your patients, but further research is needed to explore this. So the bottom line is this, we now know that cognitive problems are common, you should test for them, and there are emerging treatments that could be helpful. If you want to learn more about this, I have a new book out called Mind, Mood and Memory, The Neurobehavioral Consequences of Multiple Sclerosis. I address in detail cognitive problems such as processing speed, memory, executive functioning. I speak about the personality change that can come about in more advanced multiple sclerosis. There are a couple of chapters that are devoted to depression and the frequency of depression and the brain MRI correlates of depression and how best to treat depression. There's a chapter on pseudobulbar affect. And throughout the book, I have case reports indicating the real world difficulties confronted by people with multiple sclerosis. So I thank you for your attention and I thank the organizers for having me on this program. Thanks to Dr. Feinstein for sharing his knowledge with our listeners. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to visit theneurologyhub.com for more podcasts in the field of multiple sclerosis. MS Masters is brought to you by the editors of the Neurology Hub and Practical Neurology.